Holy Father, we bow before your presence to thank you that you are present. You are here in this building, Father. And God, uh, teach us, Lord, to stay in the tension of one hand, the dearness of God, our daddy, and that he wants us to be comfortable in his presence. And yet, Lord, there's a certain side of your presence that you want us to honor, revere, respect, and even be a tad bit uncomfortable with. So, Lord, we pray that you'll show us how to run to you as our father, but to realize that you are holy, you are God, and besides you, there is no other. And so, Father, we pray that you'll speak to us today. Lord, we, we all have had varied experiences this past week. We've had challenges, we've had victories, we've had defeats, we've, we've had laughter, we've had tears. God, I just pray that you will meet us where we are this very day. Do your work in and through us. Give us the ability to concentrate. Lord, what an incredibly significant passage of Scripture this is today for us. So I pray, God, that the Spirit of God will arrest our attention, keep distractions away, and may we hear what God has to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. We're having a prayer gathering here on Wednesday night. And uh, this is part of our heart and passion for renewal and awakening at our church for the spirit of God to do a great work here in and through our church and I need to I need to share this with you Uh, I I really believe this with all of my heart in my early years of my Christian life I didn't understand this but seeing a lot of the road in the rearview mirror I do understand this nothing happens in the Christian life apart from prayer nothing happens and uh I want to encourage you to come. We were going to have prayer requests for our church to God to move here at our church in a great, great way. And so it would invite you. I know that you're busy. I know that there are things on your plate. But if you can rearrange your schedule to be here, we're going to pray for an hour. It won't be spooky, but we're going to seek God together as a church that he will move. I just have this conviction as I shared with you last week and began this series on revival here um, at the church, um, I, I just really feel that God wants to do a deep work in our body. He wants to do something in our lives. And you know, it, it's, it's kind of like, like building skyscrapers. I grew up in the metropolitan New York area and where they have all these skyscrapers and big buildings. You got to go down pretty deep in order to sustain the height. And if God's going to do a significant work here in our church, it's going to depend on the depths of our people. Uh, I don't want us to be a program-driven church. I don't want us to be a church that just is attracted to stuff that we do. And we're going we're gonna to have programs, don't get me wrong, but I want us to lead with the life of God, that it's vital and it's real. But there's a price to be paid for that. That doesn't happen by wishing it would happen. It happens by us spending time before the Lord and praying for one another and praying for our church and praying for our needs. And so... I'm going to ask you to come and join us. We're not going to spend a lot of time talking about prayer on Wednesday night. We're going to spend time praying together in groups. And it, it's going to be, it's going to be a, a great, great time together. If you have your Bibles, I want you to meet me in that text. Hosea, chapter 5, last verse through chapter 6. Hosea is between Daniel and Joel. Uh, just look in the table of contents. You'll get it. <laughs> you, you'll find it. 
I started last week this series on revival, on renewal. I started to use a euphemism for revival or a synonym for revival because revival is an old word and people have these, all these weird concepts of revival, sawdust trail, people getting out of control emotionally and this kind of thing. And then you know what I decided to do? I, I, I decided, let's, let's stop the cute games. Let's not use another word for it. Let's just define the word. It's a good word. It's a biblical word. It, 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 it's a word that expresses the life of God. Remember I said last week that there is this revival paradox. It, it's uh, on one hand, on one hand, you, you can't orchestrate revival. You can't manufacture it. And I, and I warn people all the time, stay away from Stay away from services and things like that where people are trying to orchestrate some emotional response to God. You can't orchestrate, you can't orchestrate revival when it, comes to, um, when it comes to a community of faith. Now, here's the paradox. On the other hand, on a personal level, I said this last week, and it's very important because it, it's germane to my message today. I've got to connect the dots. On a personal level, you can be revived, and I can be revived anytime we want to. Anytime we want to. And the, the pattern for that is Galatians 5, chapter 16, uh, Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through the end. It's called walking in the Spirit. It's the freedom and renewal that is ours individually. And so I really believe one of the reasons why the church is not experiencing refreshment and spiritual life that it ought to experience is because there are not enough individual believers experiencing that life. And so... It's very difficult to define revival. I've, I've read a lot and, uh, through the years on this subject in preparation for this series, read some more stuff. And uh, there are a lot of descriptive definitions which were really good, but it's hard to nail it down. I love what Hanson and Woodbridge say in their fascinating book, uh, A God-Sized Vision. As I said last week, you can describe it. Uh, they, they make a the descriptive definition. They said, well, God is always present with his people, but in revival, he's present beyond a shadow of a doubt. It's his manifest presence of renewal and awakening. I've entitled uh, this message today, the second part, which is a vertical message, my relationship with God. I've entitled it, Back in the High Life, again. And you're probably smiling. Yes, I did steal the title from Steve Winwood's song. But I, I want to read part of the lyrics of Winward's song, and then I want to read the lyrics of another song that was written almost 150 years ago. Winward wrote this song relatively recently, a few years back. He says in this wonderful tune, I love the tune, the words are kind of like not so good, but I love the tune. He says, back in the high life again. It used to seem to me that my life ran on too fast, and I had to take it slowly just to make the good parts last. But when you're born to run, it's so hard to just slow down. So don't be surprised to see me back in the bright part of town. Then the chorus, I'll be back in the high life again. All the doors I, I closed one time will open up again. I'll be back in the high life again. All the eyes that watched me once will smile and take me in. What Winwood is talking about is being the center of attention, right? He's talking about, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm working on my game. I went underground and got my act together. I'll be back out there in the clubs. I'll be the focus of attention. I'll be back in the high life again. You'll love me, and it'll be great. It's all about me. You say, Crawford, why did you quote that song? 
Because much of Christianity today is all about us. We're our worst enemies when it comes to renewal and revival. And the devil is very subtle. You've heard me say this before, the difference between transactional Christianity and transformational Christianity. I think we have created a group of people in our churches because we have fed them little slivers and sound bites and transactional stuff and success-oriented stuff and how to have a better this and a better that and manage this better and do this better. It's kind of like going on a diet. You know, if you don't eat a lot of food and you don't eat enough food, your stomach shrinks. And so now you're, you're uncomfortable if you eat a healthy diet. I think that's what we've done. We, we've, we've unwittingly taught people that Christianity is all about you. As if you're back in the high life and his attention is all on you and we leverage our walk with God to fill in our little struggles with our own significance and that kind of thing. Well, the other song, it was written so long ago, it's a part of public domain, meaning that you can quote it and this kind of thing and don't have to worry about crop, copyright infringements. It's a song that was written by William Mackey back in 1863. The name of this song is Revive Us Again. We praise thee, O God, for the son of thy love, for Jesus who died and is now gone above. We praise thee, O God, for thy spirit of light who hath shown us our Savior and scattered our night. All glory and praise to the Lamb that was slain, who hath borne all our sins and hath cleansed every stain. All glory and praise to the God of all grace, who hast brought us and sought us and guided our ways. Revive us again, fill each heart with thy love. May each soul be rekindled with fire from above. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Hallelujah, amen. Hallelujah. Find the glory. Revive us again. <sighs> Revival is about the demonstration and celebration of the glory of God through his people. It's a call back to the high life. That's what revival's about. Revival's not about me. Revival's always, always, always about the glory of God, demonstrated and celebrated by God's people. It's always vertical that pours itself out horizontally, eclipses me, and it makes God famous during my moment in history. But as I mentioned to you last week, there's spiritual drift. And I need to connect with this because that's where Hosea comes in. There is spiritual drift. It's a part of our DNA. I mentioned last week that there's no such thing as, as a plateau in the Christian life. I know we use the language, and I do too, that I peaked or there's stagnation or there's plateau. No, there's no such thing as peaking. There's no such thing as plateauing. There's no such thing as stagnation in the Christian life. The Christian life is always movement. We're either pressing into God or we're moving away from God. And you know what? We all like to sin. I like to sin. Is it terrible to say that? But we all do. We like it. 
And there's always this pull in us. If you read through the Bible one time, I guarantee you what you will conclude <laughs> before you get to the major prophets, what you will conclude. If you read through the Bible one time, you will see this crazy pattern. It is unbelievable. And it's not just in the Old Testament, it's in the New Testament today. You'll see this five-fold cycle that I label the cycle of restoration. It is amazing. It starts with restoration. God visiting his people and he's alive and you sense his presence and there are great things going on. And then there is, secondly, disobedience. Now, if you don't repent real quickly and get back in line, then the disobedience becomes a comfortable disobedience, which enters the third phase. Then God warns. You'll see this pattern all throughout the scripture. He warns. He wants, Crawford, don't do that. Uh, this is, no, I'm warning you. I'm warning you. I'm warning you. I'm warning you. You'll see signs of God warning us, warning us. Warning us. Warning us. But part of the problem with sin is that sin is deceptive. It's amazing what we can talk ourselves into. It's amazing how we can minimize sin. It's amazing how we can couch it in terms that anchor it to our past and our history and our dysfunctions or emptiness or lack in our lives. And we kind of put it in the category of stuff that is acceptable to us. And so we counsel it away. There's nothing wrong with counseling. Don't get me wrong. I'm not, counselors are great. But there are times in which sometimes if you go to the wrong kind of counselor, they, they will sanitize the sin and keep you in that process. And before you know it, we're in this, we're in this little muck and mire self-deception. And so we believe it. Gone from restoration, disobedience, Warning, and then fourthly, judgment. Are you saying God judges Christians? Absolutely, I'm saying that. I'm going to get to that in a moment. God always judges, always judges, and severely judges the sin of his people, Old and New Testament. He severely judges the sin of his people, always. And so there's judgment. Now, here's the problem. If we don't respond to God's judgment, one of two things will happen. Hopefully, we'll respond positively to his judgment. That is called repentance. And when we repent of our sin, we get restored and renewed and refreshed. But if we do not repent of our sin, what happens even to covenant people is that God will do one of two things. We see it in the Old Testament and see it in the New Testament. God will either take our lives away, premature death, Or he'll put us in a category on a shelf marked unusable. And so there is this cycle that we typically go through. But as we wander through Hosea chapter 5 verse 15 to verse 3 of chapter 6, we'll see that we don't necessarily need to live in that cycle. That there is a high life. I'm not talking about sinless perfection, but I'm talking about a refreshing responsiveness to God that keeps us from this roller coaster cycle of falling into sin, down in the doldrum, getting spanked by God, back on the top, going through this over and 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 over again. We don't have to do that. 
We don't have to do that. The point of Hosea chapter 5, verse 15 through chapter 6, verse 3, and let me just back it up a little bit and say the point of the entire book, there, there are two things that you, when you read this, when you read this small book, you're struck with these two things. Number one, it's the threat and dominance of the Assyrians representing the pending judgment of God. Uh, <laughs> they had gone to level four. And the people of God, the, uh, the children of Israel, God had warned them and 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 then taken them seriously. They said, well, yeah, okay, warning, okay. I've heard that before, okay, heard that. Nothing's happened yet. So they, they gotten comfortable in their disobedience and they just kept sinning, 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 sinning. And they got really smug. And Hosea says... Yo, dude, do you know who's surrounding us? The Assyrians. And God warned us. Unless there's repentance, you're going to be a slave. But the second thing that's ringing through this book, which is the emphasis of Hosea, is the priority of Israel to turn back to God and experience revival. Revival. And that's what this little book is about. It's those paradoxes. It's like, will you listen? Will you listen? Will you listen? And I sometimes think God stands up in our churches and the Holy Spirit shouts through preachers and others in our churches say, will you listen? You don't have to live that way. You don't have to live that way. There are four words that that will help you understand these four verses. And let me give you the four words. And uh, this is a remarkable passage of Scripture. Let me give you the four words. The first word is removed. The second word is return. The third word is revive, and the fourth word is refreshed. This is remarkable, and it's sort of sequential. And that first word is a, oh boy, that's a shocking word. When we read what God says here, you you don't want to get to this place. Trust me. if If you are living in sin... If there's a sin in your life that you've not repented of, if God's warning you, I say this not to be dramatic, but I say this to preach the whole counsel of God. You, you hear what I have to say here, or not me, but you hear what this text has to say. You, you, you don't want to stay where you are. I'm telling you, you don't want to stay where you are. Listen to what he says here. First is the word removed. Verse 15 says, I will return again to my place. Oh, that, I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. Now, I'm going to give you the three reasons why God removes his presence from us later on. 
But let me just say, the three reasons why he removes his presence from us is found in this verse. Could not be clearer. The three big reasons why God will remove his presence from us. All right, now I need to set this up. I want to soak in that opening line for just a second when he says, I will return again to my place. Uh, that, that, is, that is summarizing what he said in verse 14, the analogy, how he identifies himself as a lion. Listen to what he says in verse 14. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I. Now, I want you to, I want you to underscore that. Notice the repetition there. God is the one that's saying, I'm the one that's judging you. Okay, don't, 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 don't say that Assyria is judging you. Don't say that there's other people. Don't say that the devil's judging you. No, the devil has nothing to do with this. He said, I'm the one that's judging you. So he says, I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. It's like he says, I'm the one. I'm the one that's judging. Okay, I'm, 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 going, to, I'm, going, to, I'm going to judge you. And then like a lion that goes back to his lair. Or like a lion that goes back to his den. I'm going to remove my presence from you. That's an amazing statement. That is an amazing statement. There's a theological disconnect here. On one hand, no, God is always with us. But he's not always with us. No, he will never leave us or forsake us. But he won't bless and sanction our lives. So he leaves us in the sense that he will not endorse our lives. He will not endorse our behavior and he will no longer work through us. So he says, I I will leave you. I'm going back. I'm going back. Just as that line, you say, well, Crawford, you know, it, that, that's kind of strong, isn't it? Well, you have to understand, in the Bible, discipline and judgment often precede revival. We will quote Second Chronicles 7, 14. Many of us have heard that verse. If my people will call by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven, will forgive their sin and heal their land, right? We, we quote that verse. Well, you got to drop that verse in its context. What has just taken place there is that Solomon has just built a house, a temple for the glory of God. They've had a gala dedication and God's presence was there. And Solomon pleaded with God that he would show up and bless the people when they turn toward this temple, that he will honor that. And God said, I'll do it. But God dropped in this little caveat. He dropped in this little statement in verse 13 because he knew that the wandering and drift DNA in his people. So he says in verse 13, when you decide to drift and wander away from me, when you decide to not obey me, when you decide not to repent of your sins and you decide to do whatever you want to do, he said, and I will send judgment. He said, I will close up the heavens. There won't be any rain. There will be a drought and I will send locusts to judge you. And the reason I'm judging you and the reason I'm withdrawing my presence from you is to get your attention. I'm stepping back so you step forward. (sighs) 
You need me. Some of the hard times we go through may not be about character development. It could be about consequences for bad choices. We're so quick to say that our suffering is from the Lord to build my character. And it, and it could be. But what I'm saying right now is very unpopular because we don't like preaching this way. But the truth of the matter is, as you read the Bible, you know, the Bible says in an awful lot of places that some of the mess that we go through is not because of a character development that God's trying to bring. It's something wrong with our characters, consequences. And could it be that some of the things that's happening in our lives, some of the things that's not working out, could it be, and I'm not saying this, but I need to be honest, could it be that God's saying, you know, Crawford, have you sat down and really taken a look at your life? This could be because of some of the choices you made. Some of the stuff that's in your, in your life that you, you, you keep messing with and some of the attitudes that you have. You say, well, where do you get that from? Well, you know, there's some examples in the New Testament. Ah, uh, yeah, book of Acts, Ananias and Sapphira. He said, well, that's Acts. And it says, okay, well, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. Some believers were sick and even died because of sin in their lives. What about Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 11? When the writer of Hebrews says, you know what? You know, whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And then what about that scary text in 1 John chapter 5, verses 16 through 17, that clearly seems to indicate that unrepentant habitual sin in the life of a follower of Christ can be the cause of their premature death? Here, here, here's what God's been trying to teach all of us, and we don't preach about this a lot because it doesn't, doesn't fill up churches, but what God's been trying to teach all of us, you know he's trying to teach all of us? I have never tolerated sin. Didn't tolerate it in the Old Testament? I don't tolerate it in the New Testament. I don't ever tolerate sin. Sin is nothing that, Crawford, you ought to be comfortable with. So, right here in the passage, this one verse says that there are three reasons why we lose a sense of God's presence. He's really clear about it. Number one, is because we've not dealt with our sin. Look again at verse 15. Until they acknowledge their guilt. That speaks of our condition. He says, I'm, I'm out of here. I'm going back. Just like a lion goes back to his lair or his den, I'm removing my presence until, Crawford, you acknowledge your sin, your condition. Secondly, he withdraws his presence because we've not made him first. Our neglect. Again, look at verse 15. And seek my face. It's an Old Testament colloquialism. It's, it, it, it means, it means a, a, a passionate, prioritized search. To seek the face of God. It means to put him first. It means that we're all consumed with him. Oh, yesterday my son called me from Chicago to tell me something that his three-year-old had said. Our, my little granddaughter, Lonnie, said, Dad, Friday night at dinner time, Lonnie just said, Daddy, I always need God. I always need God. I always need God. 
See, I don't think the church in the United States, for the most part, I think we need God and we pray and And God removes his presence because we're not serious about him. That's what he says here. He says, and in their distress, earnestly seek me. We have a condition. We haven't dealt with our sin. We have a neglect. We haven't put him first. And we have an attitude. We're not serious about God. I mean, he's part of my formula. Don't get me wrong. I, I, I come to church and I, I do things and, and, you know, he's a part of how I do life and he's a part of what I think about. But, you know, the truth of the matter is, I mean, I won't verbalize this, but, you know, you're more serious about your golf game. You're more serious about uh, your job. You're more serious about your family. You're more serious about your toys. You're more serious about other things than we are about God. And that's what he said here. Have you ever been in a jam and those who could help you were not around? My mother-in-law, Karen's mom, is gone on now. But years ago, oh, this is a sad thing happened. She was home by herself, slipped and fell, and broke her hip. And unfortunately, she was a place in the house where she couldn't, she wasn't near the phone and she couldn't get to the phone. And poor thing laid there on the floor all day long in pain until her son came home. And I read this text, I think about that. But the truth of the matter is God's in the next room. So I'll, I'll go back to my place and I just want you to lay here for a while while the Assyrians put you in slavery. Removed. The second word is return. This is the idea of repentance. This is what God says. And then Hosea says, if this is what God says to us, that I'm, I'm going to get up and just like a lion who destroys his prey, prey and goes back to his lair, I'm going to get up and I'm going to leave you, Crawford. I'm going to leave you over there because your priorities are messed up. You're in a terrible condition and, 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 and you're neglecting me and you've got this smug attitude that, you know, you can pull it off all by yourself. You're not really that serious about me, okay? Well, I'll, I'll leave you there and see how, you, how that's going to work for you for a while. And then Hosea says, what we ought to be doing is there's a sense of urgency that ought to grab us. That's why he says in verse 1 of chapter 6, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. We return because we realize in these comparisons that, number one, we have been hurt in order to be healed. God is not, God, God is not into hurting us. Everything that God does is for our redemption and for our healing. That's the reason why he will incrementally turn up the heat until we respond to him. For years and centuries, they had rebelled against God and God had warned and warned and warned and warned and warned. He said, well, maybe I have to do this in order for them to be healed. 
Maybe the pain that you're going through right now is so that God can marvelously heal you and heal me. Secondly, we have been broken to be made whole. This graphic language here, struck down, uh, speaking of all of my self-reliance and all of your self-confidence and all of your pride and all of your arrogance and all of the stuff that you hold on to, I, I've struck you down. Why? Because I want to make you whole. But the wholeness that I'm talking about, it's not Steve Winwood's song, I'll be back in the high life again. It's not a wholeness about you. The wholeness that I want from you, Crawford, is revive us again. I want, the, I want my glory to shine through you. And I, I just need to bring you to a place in your life I, where you finally see, you finally see that I don't do double billing. And you finally get it. That your life is my life. It's not you and me. It's me living through you. (sighs) Takes a while for us to get there though, doesn't it? Essentially, verse 1 is a cry for God's mercy and compassion. And that's what repentance does. Repentance sees the reality of my condition and sees the sufficiency of God. That's the story of the prodigal son, though, isn't it? I mean, this is, it has, his, has his name all over it, doesn't it? I mean, homeboy's just so full of himself, the arrogance. And if you understand the culture of the time, the youngest son doesn't come ask the father for his inheritance. That's an insult to God, to the, to, to the, to the father. But this, this young man was so full of himself, so overconfident and so strong-willed and just knew that he, can, he knew how to lead his own life. He gets his money. The money becomes God to him. You know what God does in his, and in, in, in the, the father representing God, he just sort of stands back, says, okay, have at it. I will go to my place. Yeah, go ahead. And the devastation began to cascade down over him. And the text says that when he came to his senses, to not deal with your sin is to embrace spiritual insanity. came to his senses. He goes, what am I doing? Hurt to be healed. I will go back to my father. Broken to be made whole. Are you listening to what God might be saying to you today? Are you listening? Are you listening? Are you paying attention? Third word. Revival. When the conditions are met, revival comes. Verse 2 says, 
After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up. Now, let me say a little word about two days and third day. It's a colloquialism. It's an expression that indicates a short period of time. It's as if he says, uh, Hosea saying, we, 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 we don't have to wait a long time for God to work. You have to wait a long time. You, you, you just acknowledge that you're wrong. You say, Lord, I'm willing to change. I turn toward you. We set ourselves up to be, to be filled, to be renewed by our great God. And Hosea expected revival to take place soon, and he describes revival. This is a marvelous definition of revival. Right here, right here. Descriptive definition. He says, after two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. Here you go. This is what revival does. He says, okay, he will revive us. What will happen? Number one, his delight will be in us. The idea of raising up. Raising up is not about resurrection, it's about God's favor. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. That he will delight in us. When he says that he raises up, he will favor us. Now, I got to say something here to balance this out. No, God, God, God cannot love any of us anymore. If, if you're living in filth and sin and done the most debased stuff and you haven't repented, God loves you just the same as he loves a person who's living in, in revival and open re, uh, uh, confession of their sins, okay? Not that God loves us anymore. I want us to understand that. God's love is not conditional. His favor is. His favor and usefulness and blessing is conditional. That's both Old and New Testament, by the way. Paul told Timothy, Timothy, be careful, be careful. Be a vessel of honor and not of dishonor. So when we are made right with God and we repent of our sin, he raises us up to be a recipient of his joy and his blessing, not only in us, but through us. And so God delights in us, but secondly, our delight is in him. Notice the line. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. That, that's an expression of joy. It, 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 it means to, 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 to know his presence in abundance and, and to delight in the God of my salvation. When we deal with our sin before God, we're struck with the realization that no one else or nothing else matters but him. The darkness is gone. It's no longer like we're just dragging huge ball and chain and we're walking into the wind in my Christianity now the wind is to our back his delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law he meditates day and night that's what God wants to do for all of us but we've got to get rid of the impediments the junk the stuff we can't have freedom on our terms. We cannot tell God to give me joy 
when I won't get rid of the joy stopper. Return. Revival takes place. And then the last word is the word refreshed. I am so thankful to God that Hosea put this in this passage. Because what what Hosea, uh, in essence, does is that, look, yes, he'll revive us and he'll come to us. But we we don't have to be waiting for the downpours during seasons of drought. That renewal and refreshment is up to us. This is a remarkable verse. So listen to what he says here. He says, okay, let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. He talks about our ongoing renewal and a refreshment as if it depends on us, as I just said. The first thing I would say is that there is a deliberate dependence. He says, he says, he says, let us know, let us press on to know. And by the way, the Hebrew word translated for know is a very intimate term. He said, let us press on to know. The, 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 the verb translated press on here means to literally pursue or chase. You get it? He said, it suggests the intensity of newfound devotion. He says, go after God intentionally. Go after God intentionally. I would say that he's talking about discipline in the Christian life. Get in the word intentionally. Discipline yourself to pray intentionally. Let us press on. No, 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 Crawford, you own that. You own that. God is not going to come by and give you this warm, fuzzy feeling. You, You know, you get up earlier. You press on. You pursue it. This is where real refreshment comes. The showers come out of acts of obedience and spiritual discipline. We, we've got free material back here in the commons to help all of us get in the Word. Just go by and take it. This is where the battles are won. This is where we stop the roller coaster ride. We stop, you know, grave feelings in and down in the valley, and grave feelings in and down in the valley, victory over sin and back in the pits, and victory back in the pits, and victory back in the pits. Why? Because we won't embrace, let us press on to know. I, oh boy, I gotta go. Uh, look, 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 this, this, uh, I, I got to read this to you. The Welsh Revival. Great word. And by the way, this is the book that is small book, a God-sized vision, incredible book by Colin Hansen and John Woodbridge. But they talk about, it's amazing, the demise of the Welsh Revival. In Wales, there was two great, incredible revivals in the, ni- one in the 19th century, the middle of the 19th century, around 1859 or so. Just amazing what took place. I mean, this coal mining was there. Uh, such a revival. The miners stopped cussing, and so the mules didn't know what to do. I mean, it's a true story. True story. Yeah. It's a bad place. And then another great revival took place around the turn of the century, the 20th century, around 1900. A uh, young preacher by the name of Evan Roberts was greatly used of God to see this incredible national revival take place. But I think every believer needs to heed the words of this observation. In retrospect, we could see warning signs embedded in the last great Welsh revival. Evan Roberts faded from the scene in late 1905 and needed a prolonged retreat in 1906. 
ecstasy, ecstasy aside, his shortcomings became apparent. Hear these words, please. Robert's a gifted exhorter who led meetings filled with prayers, singing, and testimonies, did not prioritize Bible teaching. Compared to the 1859 revival, fewer Welsh preachers taught biblical doctrine. Instead, many new converts sought mystical experiences. Without basic biblical formation, many caught up in the revival lacked the necessary tools for spiritual growth. Discipline is not a contradiction to the work of God. The the intentional study of the word of God, hear me, sustains our walk with him. So don't go either or with me here. Don't go either or with me here. That's a cheap way out. Don't overcorrect. Don't just say, oh, we'll just raise our hands and worship and praise and, you know, we'll only, only preach for about five minutes or we don't need all the doctrine. We'll just do that. Okay, okay, you'll get caught up with that for a while, but there won't be any substance to sustain it. Church history has taught us that. So Hosea says right here in this text as I wrap it up, he says, let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as a dawn, and he will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. There's a confident expectation. He will show up as sure as a dawn, as sure as a dawn. Crawford, you search your heart, you get clean before him. You spend time in his word and in prayer. You love him. He's going to show up as sure as the dawn. And we will flourish. He says showers, spring rains. And that line, if you don't know, uh, uh, if you don't know about the, uh, the topography and geography of Palestine, you can miss that line, spring rains. Some translations call it latter rains. Let me tell you the import of that line. That's not some throwaway line, and he's not just being poetic. It's a marvelous word picture. In Palestine, the rainy season comes end of November, beginning of December, and lasts the first part of March. And if you know anything about Palestine and Israel, it's just desert there, and they depend on that deluge of, of rain. But what they really love the farmers really love what they call the latter rains or the spring rains. These are the showers that strengthen the crop. They come in March through May. Are you strengthening the crop? Fellowship in 2011, I'm praying those words from Psalm 80, verse 18, those three words, give us life. But I don't, I'm not looking for some quick emotional fix. I want Crawford to be a well-rounded servant of the Lord who is feeding himself from the word of God 
was taking care of his sin and his life, and he's growing and responsive to God. I want Crawford to be a better man of God. I want God to use me, not because I have some gifts, but I want him to use me because I'm jealous for his glory. Let's stand together. I'm going to ask this morning, and I know I went a little long. We had a number of things going on by way of announcements and what have you, all vital to the life of our church. But I'm going to ask if we have some leaders here, in our elders or those who are serving or in any capacity of leadership in our church, um, Stephen ministers or whatever, I'm going to ask you to come right now, if you would please. Just come up. Um, Here's what I like to do. I, uh, you know, people have asked me all the time, Crawford, you know, some people say, how come we don't have invitations every Sunday? Well, I don't always feel as if the Lord works that way every Sunday. I think sometimes the greatest response to God is to go home and think about it. You know, sometimes I think that's what you need to do. But I also think there are those times when the Lord's doing business with us. And before we get caught up with conversation, where we're going to eat lunch, what games we're going to watch, who's going to win, this kind of thing. It's good to pause and pay attention to the business that God's doing. And so what I'd like for you to do today, I'm not, I'm going to pray and you all dismiss. If God's speaking to you, and you know that there's some stuff in your life that you really need to deal with, and you want us to pray with you. I'm going to ask you to come up and we'll pray with you. And we have a prayer room out to the left there. If you feel more comfortable going in a prayer room, you want to talk with someone or whatever, we we'll encourage you to do that. And one last thing I want to say to you today before we leave. Listen to me. Listen to me. Let's all get in the habit of when the Holy Spirit convicts us of something to deal with it Immediately. Immediately. If you do not, it's amazing the capacity to deal with sin that we can get comfortable with. And I want you to think about that today and this week. The more we deal with it, the more sensitive we'll be to God and to the stuff in our lives. Father, thank you for our time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you, O oh God, for these warnings. Thank you, God, for the refreshment that you will give to us, that you will come to us. O oh Lord, send the showers, we pray. Wash over us. Lord, help us in every way. And Lord, I pray for each one um, that before we leave here, that we will deal with what you have placed on our hearts. Now dismiss us from this place. Give us a great week. Use us for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.